HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. Last month, Hurricane Florence walloped parts of North Carolina. According to the Weather Channel, it was the wettest tropical storm to ever hit the Tar Heel State. So how did the restaurant industry respond? Some helped FEMA weather the storm, while others got to work feeding people on the ground. We just walked in and said, we know how to cook, what can we do? They said, I need you guys to just cook 150 pork loins, and we were just like, uh, okay. (laughs) Now the attention needs to be on Florence's long-term effect on North Carolina's farming community. The general mood of farmers is one of certainly resilience and almost feels like it's the normal course of business to just get hit by a gigantic hurricane and need to just keep on going. So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. And on today's episode, what happens when food stylist Rebecca Pepler trades in her 250-square-foot New York City apartment for a room with a view in the 18th arrondissement of Paris? Well, for one, she learns about the power of opero. Aperitif, cocktail hour the French way, is as much a cookbook as it is a guide through the fundamental nature of pre-dinner drinks and the utmost importance of taking time for yourself and others, while savoring said sip. With recipes for all seasons and savory bites to pair, Peritif gives you time to enjoy your joie de vivre mm. in a glass. Mm. How was that pronunciation? It was pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. That's like a seven. It, you know, you're... Yes, you're very good. You're, Thank you. You speak French very well, I, I, pr- I appreciate it. As, as you well tell as me that I do. in English, so. yes. Uh, we've known each other for a long time, so no introductions are necessary. Plus, you can listen to a past episode, which yeah. you've been on and talked all about your food styling life. But th- this is another chapter. This is another iteration of who you are. And I've even noticed on your website that you've duly listed yourself as a stylist and writer. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that said, you certainly are one because you have a book that just came out today. I do. And I how do. wild is that? It's wild. Uh, you saw me right before coming in here. It's feeling real <laughs> wild at the moment. Yeah. Um, but but in a in a very positive way. And and though this book pertains to this francophile or now that you live in Paris, French way of enjoying a drink before dinner. Uh, uh, did you have that same sensibility about what to snack and drink on before a meal when you grew up in Wisconsin? Like, what is the Wisconsin opero slash apero snack? Oh, man. Cheese curds and beer. It is. Or, or an old-fashioned, I guess, if you want to go cocktail instead of, uh, instead of beer. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's it. Or a Shirley Temple, if we're talking about when I was living in Wisconsin. <laughs> I do see a lot of grenadine in this book, and I felt like maybe yeah. <laughs> that parlayed into your later life. Definitely. But, but, again, this transition from being a food stylist to writer, and mm-hmm. certainly not losing the food stylist part of your life, this was a big transition. Yeah, a coming home kind of also. Uh, I think a retransition back into what I had originally started out as. I went to school for journalism, always knew I wanted to write, and then I fell, as so many of us do, into a career uh, that was adjacent to what I wanted to do and not exactly the thing, uh, which I love. Food styling is amazing, and I, I, I've had such incredible luck in, in that side of my career. Um, and it prepared me to write this book, to be perfectly honest. We actually, when we met, I was making cocktails at my uh, former job and needed help learning how to shoot them. So it really comes full circle, even with us. And the perspective didn't change that much either, because you once had a Brooklyn rooftop, and now you have this amazing skyline of, of the Eiffel Tower. But I feel like the biggest transition, at least for knowing you so well, was that this is Yes, a book about a very specific thing, mm-hmm. but I feel like the book came out of a situation in where you had to embrace a pero. You had to embrace the aperitif and taking that time for yourself and reflect on where you were and what you've done, mm-hmm. and then that became a book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I started I started drinking on a rooftop in Brooklyn long before I knew I was going to move to Paris or knew what uh, aperitif uh, was in the first place. It was really, it was born out of being in my 20s and not having the funds to go out drinking every night, but wanting to kind of surround myself with good friends and good food and good drink. And um, so I started kind of self-teaching about different types of bottles to put on my bar cart um, and and inviting people over. And then when I moved to France, I was introduced to this this lifestyle that I realized that I had kind of like fallen into, but fully embraced once I got there, for sure. What, what happens during a para hour? Is it like happy hour here in the States where it actually lasts three hours and you try to get a schnookered as quickly as possible? Schnookered. Schnook- yeah, I'm saving that for you. <laughs> um, no. So uh, the there's, an, a, there's a modicum of similarity overlap between happy hour and aperitif hour. Um, but it really just lies in the time of day. So it's after work, before dinner. The rest is different uh, between the two. So happy hour, you're right. You want to get schnookered. You want to get two-for-one drinks and uh, kind of forget your work day. And with aperitif hour, it's more have something lovely, usually lighter, um, low alcohol by content, uh, low alcohol, gosh, words, (laughs) low ABV, um, alcohol by volume, um, and transition from your 
end of your workday into your evening. It opens the night rather than ends the day, if you think about it like that. Um, and it can last, yeah, like, you know, a few hours after work. It can last all the way into the evening and make it into a kind of apero de natoire. Or, um, or it can just be like 45 minutes, meet up with a friend, have a drink outside at a cafe, and then move on with the rest of your night. It's a really, it's lovely. It's got a lot of different iterations. I've been able to actually experience this with you in Paris, which is a wonderful thing. Um, and I wonder whether or not it is actually a, a pre-dinner only thing, or it is a lifestyle that lives outside of that context. Fully, fully. Yes, it, it can enter you into your dinner portion of the evening. But yeah, it's it's a moment. It's a magical moment in time that that is taken throughout the entire country. Um, you know, it's not, it's not Paris based. And I was really, uh, specific about that when I was writing the book, I didn't want, I didn't shoot it all in Paris. I didn't write about it only from Paris. When I was researching, I traveled all over France. Um, and yeah, it's a moment that you take with your family, with your friends, with yourself, just to like take a breath, take a pause and then move on with the rest of your day. I mean, yes, they're low ABV, fortified wines, liqueurs, and, you know, uh, like shandies of cocktails. But the regionality of the spirits is what was kind of so fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. And it's in a lot of these boxes on these specific pages that you you tell a little bit about these trips you've, you know, uh, ventured on to a couple of these, uh, you know, spirit makers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Talk to me about what those trips were like, what you retained from you know, uh, you know, those places, but also the beauty. Oh, gosh, yeah. They seem like stunning sites to visit. It was amazing. I mean, France is beautiful. And I feel very lucky that I got to travel so much of it while I was researching the book um, and and call it work rather than just holidays. Although it felt, you know, drinking and traveling usually tends to like lean towards a holiday feel. Um I did a bunch of different trips. One, the biggest one was a 10-day solo road trip from Marseille all the way down to um, the border between Spain and France. And I stopped all along the way at a, you know, I had pastis outside of Marseille. I had beer and sous um, at the facilities further south. I was able to drink vermouth at uh, Noli Pratt and talk to the people that are producing it right now because, you know, these aperitifs, these bottles of aperitif are rooted in such history, but there are still modern things that are created every day, every year in France. So it was really nice to have that juxtaposition of being in the spot that they were created and still being created in sometimes very similar ways to the way that they first started and in other times very modern ways, but still retaining that sense of place and history. When did it change that seeing these spirits on people's bar carts didn't mean that they were gifted it from a friend and it mm-hmm. became a dusty bottle that just sat there as, as you know, a memory of, of you know, said friendship. Mm-hmm. And it turned into an active friendship by sharing it with friends. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's always had a, a place with friends just as much as family. Uh, however, you know, as you, you, I think you had Lindsay on your podcast as well, the writer of The New Paris, Lindsay Tremita. Um, she talks a lot about that transition into what uh, the new Paris specifically, but kind of the modern France looks like. And I think there was a transition when cocktail bars started opening up in the bigger cities across France. And these old aperitifs started to be brought back. Like one of the one of the recipes in the book is by a gentleman who owns Le Syndicat, which is a beautiful 
cocktail bar in Paris. You should all go if you're if you're visiting the city. Um, but he his focus is on taking all of these old, you know, quote unquote old aperitifs and bringing them into the modern age by using them in um, in more modern formats, which is you know pretty much what I tried to do with the book as well. So it was really nice to have his his cocktail in here. Yeah, I mean, you have to modernize certain things like Dubonnet. Mm-hmm. I forget what the story was, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it was given to uh, some legion or, or somebody during a war, and it mm-hmm. was trying to get somebody to drink that. You, you can better explain it. Or there's a box in the book that does that. But taking these spirits outside of history and modernizing them is is, is such a non-French thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, you know, Dubonnet is funny because it, it is still, I think, it's you've kind of singled out one of the aperitifs that's still thought of as an old aperitif in a dusty bottle in a bar cart. Um, but it has such a rich history and a place on your modern bar cart, and that's what I was really interested in looking at when I started writing recipes with it. Um, and that, that goes for everything. Suze is another one that, you know, when I first started writing the book, I was talking to a, a French friend and she was like, yeah, um, I always thought of Suze as like my grandpa's drink. Like that's what, like who, what young person would ever drink Suze? And now we're seeing it, you know, not just within the context of aperitif, but at all these cocktail bars. Like when you order a white Negroni, that's, that's Suze instead of Campari in there. Campari. Mm, Italian. What a great transition. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, Campari is <laughs> Italian. Uh, you have... Um, Aperol in there, even cherry, which is from the south of Spain. Uh, Apero isn't specifically French as far as what spirits are in the drinks. Not specifically. It's uh, largely, and I wanted to keep it as much as I could within the um, boundaries of the country, if you will. However, Europe is is small, and it bleeds. All the cultures um, bleed into each other a little bit, and, and the neighboring Italy and Spain definitely come into play in French aperitif and vice versa. And so when I was writing the book, I kind of looked at what people were drinking now and what matters. And, you know, Campari and Aperol come into play. Spritz culture has, I mean, started to take over the world a little bit. Um, and I think that I have plenty to say on that that side of things. But, um, but I think that it, you know, in any aperitif that I'm seeing happening in Paris, you're seeing... Campari on the list. And, you know, sherry is something that people think about as an older spirit as well, right? And and it's just so interesting and nuanced. And it's such a great way to build flavor in a cocktail without having to add all these hard spirits. Um, because in the book, as, as I'm sure you noticed, there's no hard alcohol whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all fortified and low mm-hmm. ABV. And I think mm-hmm. it is such a great introduction because if you were ever in high school and tried to slug some of these bottles because that was the <laughs> only thing that was available on your parents' bar cart, because I never did anything like that. Never. Really, really intense to, to, to imbibe a lot of it. But to have a little sip, uh, like you said, it's so nuanced and there's such, you know, there's infinite depth in it. Definitely. You can drink it alone. You can drink it with a, a cube of ice. A little twist of citrus helps bring something out. And then adding it into cocktails, just uh, the cocktails in the book are just so simple. I think five ingredients at most for, for all of them. Um, and you're able to build such complex cocktails with small amount of gre- ingredients because they are so nuanced and interesting. And I think that that 
that's something that's really special about aperitifs. And there's not uh, not to say that there isn't champagne, beer, and wine involved in all these things as well. On that, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back and talk more aperitif with Rebecca Pepler. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. From papayas and samosas to reishi mushrooms, if it's something that sounds delicious, chances are you'll find the freshest, best version of it at Whole Foods Market. They have more than 400 stores across the country, so if you consider pizza its own food group or just can't imagine when avocado toast wasn't a thing, Whole Foods Market has you covered. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store near you. Whole Foods Market. Whatever makes you whole. Hey, and welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkill. Here today, almost at Apero Hour with Rebecca Pepler. I mean, what really defines pre-dinner? I mean, breakfast and lunch are both pre-dinner. Whatever's in your heart, Michael. Yes. <laughs> you, just, you, go, you go with your gut on that one. Yeah, in my, your heart, liver on that in my one. heart is actually a decent amount of lillet if I had my choice. <laughs> that, that is my like go-to fortified wine, and mm-hmm. when lillet rosé comes out, Holy crap. Yeah. Yeah, it is my lifeblood. It is. It really is. But on that, let's get into the book, Uh, Cocktail Hour, The French Way. Mm -hmm. And in France, uh, it has seasons. It's not, you know, Santa Monica. Um, There is warm, hot, cold, cool, and you've broken the book up uh, to be able to drink in any season. So thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) Thank you for, uh, for liking it. Yeah. And Let's start with warm because we are transitioning in New York uh, into that wonderful autumnal weather, mm-hmm. and it makes me want to drink. I mean, I love drinking year-round, but there's something about like having a hot toddy or having mm-hmm. like some kind of which one is it, shot or foad? Vin chaud. Chaud. It was neither. <laughs> uh, yeah, but having like a warm a cocktail warm, yeah. just to warm your spirit mm-hmm. is is a thing of beauty. It's, it's, yeah, once the weather starts dropping, you want to you wanna warm yourself from the inside out, right? So what is your warming drink of My choice? Warming drink of choice. You know, there's two um, warm mulled wines in the cocktail, or uh, in the cocktail, in the book. Um, a vin chaud and a, um, there's a rouge and a blanc. And I really like the white wine, the mulled white wine. It's great. Um, it was, when I tested it, I wasn't sure which way it was going to go, and uh, and it went really well. However, there's also a mulled rosé, which I made into a shot, um, and highly, highly recommend taking it, um, because you take it warm. Um, and it's the first time in my life I've had a warm shot, and uh, I will be doing it <laughs> every single year when the weather turns. I also like how the red version is is built for a crowd too. So mm-hmm. rather than making these, um, you know, slightly bespoke cocktails per person, you're you're serving this thing, um, you know, fruity red wine, honey, black peppercorn, star anise, a whole bunch of mm-hmm. lime juice, and letting people kind of take it at their will. Yeah, the lime juice is a is such a fun addition because you know, um, mulled wine can get really fruity and intense right and spicy and the addition of uh 
lime juice right at the end cuts through all of that and it makes it into a more complex cocktail than than what you're you know expecting actually one of my favorite forms of acidity and this is going to surprise you mm. is verju and you have hey, mine too yeah. <laughs> and you have a uh, two drinks a miss scarlet and a verju mm-hmm. uh, great name by the way Thank uh, you. with both using verju one white one red mm-hmm. and you know, uh, first explain what verju is. Uh, I think of it as like pre-wine. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it translates to green juice in French, right? And it's it's basically made from unripened, unfermented wine grapes. And it's just like, it's that bright, crisp acidity that you want from citrus, but without the like, the like, lime flavor orange flavor, lemon flavor. Like you're just getting the acidity without having to like add in one of those flavors into your cocktail. So you can build a base off of that and go any way you want. Um, yeah, those two are it's two of my favorite recipes. I mean, the Miss Scarlet, anytime I can talk about Clue, <laughs> <laughs> I, I never thought that when I was writing a cookbook, I'd be able to slip it in. But like I had a huge crush on Miss Scarlet when I was when I was watching that movie multiple times as a child and every year still as an adult and uh it's nice to have a little homage to her and also include one of my favorite ways to acidify a drink if you will acidity in other ways or those citrus notes um Mm -hmm. when it's warmer out come via peels and and Mm -hmm. the, the the citrus oils that are in there as well as a lot of the liqueurs that have a little bit of like citrus rind to them they're Mm -hmm. not quite as bitter as Campari's and have a little bit more aroma and effervescence. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you think is the bottle that will be the gateway into all the rest in the book? Oh, Lillet, for sure. For sure. I mean, the best thing about Lillet, and I know that it's already in your heart slash liver, so I don't have to sell you on it. No, like literally. Literally. It is in my heart. Coursing through your veins. Went down the wrong pipe. (laughs) Um, no, the best thing about Lillet, besides the fact that it's just delicious on its own, is that there are three types. And so it's a great addition to your bar cart, but it doesn't have to be just one bottle. You have white, blanc, um, red, rouge, and uh, rosé, Lillet. And so you get like a three-for-one kind of deal, and you can make a ton of, like all the recipes in the book um, that utilize the lay specify which one to use for them, but a lot of them can be switched out and that just changes the flavor slightly of the drink and, and gives you a little, um, choose your own adventure experience. Uh, there are so many drinks in here that I, I just want to drink right now and I don't know why we aren't. Oh, well, they don't know. We're drinking them. Totally. I'm not drinking water at the moment. Every single drink we mentioned, we're taking a sip of (laughs) at the moment. Or I wish I actually had a cure beer with me. Uh, I was a huge Shandy fan when I lived in Boston. Mm -hmm. Uh, You could walk around with a styrofoam cup full of beer and orange juice. And it was terrible beer and terrible orange juice. But then I saw things that that exemplified what that drink was Mm -hmm. and and exalted into a place that it should be. Well, thank you. Yeah, we have um, a lowbrow lowbrow brilliant mimosa in there which i think you're referring to and um i do say like you know use fresh orange juice because i just don't know why anyone would buy boxed orange juice there's oranges that you can squeeze and it tastes so much better and in france we're so lucky because you can walk into pretty much any convenience store and get fresh squeezed orange juice um but then use cheap beer like whatever cheap beer you love um 
So you're getting a little lowbrow and a little brilliant all together. In I also love the Monaco, which you say in the book was, uh, or is a drink for French high schoolers. Right? I, they're so much chicer than we were. <laughs> Just so much chicer. But it's kind of like a Shirley Temple meets a Shandy. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Um, it's sweet. It's bitter. Um, you use a darker beer for it. So it, it has a little bit of a body and it kind of has, I don't know, a milkshake root beer float kind of feel to it with just a little bit of alcohol. And then the cure beer with mm. creme de cassis mm-hmm. and a little chilled lager. I mean, creme de cassis is if you want one thing that's going to make your bar cart feel French, just like throw that on there and throw it in anything. It's, it's amazing. And you don't have to use a ton of it. So the bottle will last you a long time. Is there a cider scene going on in Paris right now, or mm-hmm. at least in the Paro hour? Mm-hmm. Uh, hour? Yeah. Uh, so one of the trips I did was um, was to drink a bunch of cider. And uh, there's some really great artisanal producers that are doing cool things in France right now. Um, and some of the cocktails in the book use cider. And I think that it's so interesting because cider alone is great. And it can be really complex and um, flavorful. But when you add it into a cocktail or an aperitif, it just it adds effervescence without having to add champagne. It adds, you know, these apple flavors without having to add Calvados, etc. And it just like, it's it's a one-hit wonder. I mean, there's the Cidre Cidre, the cider mm-hmm, cider mm-hmm. with fresh apple juice, the Pomode Normandie. Yes. Um, which if, I haven't been to Normandy, but I'm dying to go just drink cider, eat crepes, and stay forever. Yes, Normandy is a, it's a special place. Normandy and Brittany both, um... Some of my some of my favorite memories are there for sure. I mean, it's a lot of drinking that you did for this book. A lot of drinking, and yes. thankfully, you are masterful at the 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 bite that goes along with it. You are a great <laughs> snacker, aside from just your, you know, your cheese curd affliction. Thank um, you for complimenting my <laughs> snacking skills. I appreciate that. But but in there, you have garlic or pommiers, mm. um, tap tapenade batons potato chips of mm-hmm, course mm-hmm. Uh, uh salt and vinegar popcorn um were these traditional stacks that happen at the bars or were these out of your own you know uh your Snacking own yeah, wants. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah it's a mix of everything so with an aperitif uh you you always have a snack in france there's always a little bite that goes alongside of it it keeps you drinking it gets you excited for your dinner it's um, it's just it's what aperitif is. It's not just a cocktail. It's always with a snack. So, um, at bars you get like peanuts, popcorn, etc. Um, a bag of chips. Bring it by the canal. But I wanted to expand a little bit on it and make it, you know, recipes that are snack recipes. So some of them are traditional, like tapenade, um, piece la diere. Other ones are a little bit more quirky, like the popcorns are not your traditional flavors. Um, and I wanted to add a little bit of my my own experience aperitifing with friends into that. So I, I make a little bit more complex snacks. I don't always just open a bag of potato chips. I mean, there are, there are riettes uh, of the salmon mm-hmm. variety, pate, that are made of mushrooms and, mm-hmm. and certainly gougeres. But I did see that caramelized onion and creme fraiche dip. And I felt like you're just making cheese dip. Oh yeah, yeah. Actually, that one's a really fun one. When I was um, when I was doing that road trip in the south, I stopped. A friend was shooting her book, and they had just wrapped the photo shoot. And I came in, you know, at the perfect time because there were leftovers, but everyone was done working and had started drinking aperitifs. Um, and she was like, "Look, can you just go in the fridge and utilize whatever's in there and like make something?" And there was crumb fresh, there was harissa, there were already caramelized onions, which like, God bless that. 
Um, and I threw them all together with lemon juice and we ate it with potato chips actually. And I knew immediately that was the first recipe that I wrote for the book because it was just, it was easy, smart. And, um, and honestly, I didn't have to do any work in writing. (laughs) Well, and I love how they're communal in the same fashion that I feel Mm. like this hour or multi hour, Mm -hmm. uh, portion of the day of drinking is as well. Um, like, like grand aioli. Mm. You know, uh, it may just be seen as crudités and aioli, but it's so much more than that because it brings a whole bunch of people around a table, uh, mm-hmm. you know, sharing this, this centerpiece. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. Um, and aioli, if, uh, if you don't know what it is, it's mayonnaise. And who doesn't want to dip vegetables in mayonnaise and call it a snack? Um, but yes, it's very communal. It's very... Um, open for interpretation. So in, in that recipe in particular, I have the recipe for the, for the aioli, but then it's, you know, whatever vegetables are in season, whatever you like, whatever you don't like, like take off, you know, some people don't like fennel the way that I like fennel. So don't include it if you don't want it. Being one of the finest milkmaids, I mean, cheese purveyors that I know, (laughs) uh, I couldn't go without mentioning a whole baked Mount d'Or. And I yeah. saw that thing. And it's actually the first thing that I wrote down. Ask Pepler <laughs> about that whole baked Mount Or. And I wonder whether or not, or how you paired certain drinks with certain foods, mm. or what begat what. Oh, gosh, the Mount d'Or. I, you know, it's, it's such a short season in France for that particular cheese. And it's such a special, special thing. Um, I tried to make most of the recipes really accessible and easy to make any time of the year. And that's, that's one of the few that's, you know, you have to get it in season. Otherwise it's just not as good. Um, but with that, you know, when we shot the book, we shot it, we shot that particular photo in Normandy and it was cold and there was a fireplace going on. And, um, and my team was there. The photographer, Joanne Pye was, you know, shooting it and then digging into it immediately after. And it was a, that was a really communal experience. And there were definitely the cocktails we were shooting, but um, I think Dubonnet goes really well with that. Speaking of, as we just discussed, yeah, uh, Dubonnet with a little champagne, just, it cuts through that, that wonderful, cheesy, fatty dish and makes it something really special. You've lived and or live in Brooklyn in LA in Paris um, you're not asking people necessarily just to make the drinks in the book you're asking them to go out and experience this and Mm -hmm. you give such a great compendium of places to do so what are some of your favorite places to drink around the world right now oh man well yeah so I give a list of of the cities that are kind of what I think of as um, as my cities so Brooklyn Paris and LA uh, there are plenty of other places in the world to drink, but those are the places that I drink most often and know well enough. Uh, here in New York, um, Four Horsemen, I was actually there last night drinking aperitif with a friend. Um, that's that's one of my favorite spots. And then also June Wine Bar, which I'm going to tonight, uh, is also just, I mean, you, it's it's hard to top. And, and I live in Paris, so that's saying something. Um, in L.A., Cafe Stella is this like tiny little wine bar in the back of a, of a larger restaurant. And the team there is just doing such an amazing job at bringing Paris to LA that it's usually my first and last stop. Even if I'm coming from and going back to France, I'm like, I'm there having apéro during their apéro hour, which is great because not a lot of people are doing like 
they're doing happy hour, but not Apero hour. And they're really embracing the French lifestyle in the whole way. Thank you for bringing aperitif <laughs> to the States, if not the world. Um, you know, I couldn't be prouder of this being bookended, published out there in the world and to see where it goes and how many more apero hours uh, come out of, you know, you doing the hard and diligent work of drinking hmm. all those cocktails. Yes, Thank yes. you Thank for being you. a trooper, Pepler. Thank you, Michael. You've been listening to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to our sponsor, Whole Foods, Music by Cookies, and Matt Patterson Engineering. Cheers. listening to heritage radio network food radio support by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.